Hey guys, this is Kelsey. Uh, welcome to Merle's on that stuff podcast. Uh, we're talking about things that are relevant to Merle's Inlet, as I stated in the last episode. Um, but if this is the first episode you're listening to, I will, uh, give a recap of that. So Merle's on that stuff is the new, new name of this podcast, which was formerly Merle's Inlet sports. And I did that because I think it'll be a lot easier to get people to talk about normal things than just one particular subject. And, a lot of people have been asking me lately why I stopped drinking and it's coming up on my two year anniversary of not drinking. So I'm going to give the long answer to why I stopped and I am going to probably be, uh, probably be making a lot of references that only people around Merle's Inlet will get. And if you are not from Merle's Inlet, by all means, listen, because there's a there's going to be a lot of things that may interest you about why I decided to stop. And uh, also, if you are not familiar with Merle's Inlet, you really need to come to Merle's Inlet and check out this place because it's truly uh, fucking insane. And you, you, you could there's things that happen every night in the inlet that couldn't be written like you can't write that. Like there's no, there's no way that that could be scripted in like, there's just in every night, something like that happens. And there's, it's, it's truly a special place. But that being said, I go into some dark places in this conversation. So, uh, I try my best not to bum you out too much, but there's just a, a few dark places that have to be visited in my memory to retell some of these stories. And, um, it's all pretty much uh, the crescendoing until I quit drinking. That's going to be the point of this episode. So here goes nothing. Myrtle's on that stuff. Episode six. Why I quit drinking. Okay, so I'm going to preface all of this by saying three things. I came from a very, I come from a very Christian based raising very Christian home. I grew up in, I had a huge head injury when I was eight years old and, uh, doctor said I would never walk again or be able to do for myself, which they're pretty right on that. (laughs) And that I have a very, very, very addictive personality. So those three things are going to be relevant to all of the other stories that I tell today. The first story is when I was eight years old, I was selling world's finest chocolates, as eight-year-olds do, for uh, my school. And I was walking down the road to, to the neighbors at the far end. And when I, when I was halfway there, my Aunt Marie was on her way to go... God knows where, but she pulled up beside me and said, I'm going to drive slow. Just hop on the trunk of my car and I'll give you a ride down to the end of the road. So I was like, all right, sure. So I got on the back of her car and I'm not sure if she had just washed her car or whatever have you, but 
Uh, I didn't wait until the car had stopped before I tried to get off, and I hit my head pretty hard a couple times and pretty much had to be rushed to the hospital with a with a blood clot inside my brain. When that happened, there was... Uh, they were pretty much telling my parents that I would have seizures for the rest of my life and that I would be, uh, but I couldn't do for myself. Like I would have to have assistance in every aspect of my life, which is almost accurate. But anyway, I'm not going too far down that, that road. There was a lady who prayed for me and when, 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 uh, she stood in prayer and when, uh, when we, we say stand in prayer, that means that she went down to the altar in the front of the church and knelt down at the altar and the rest of the church stood behind her and laid hands on her as she stood in prayer for me. And this entire church prayed for me and she had this vision of me running down the hall of the hospital. And she told my grandmother about this and it was, it was my great grandmother um, who did this and I'm not sure who it was that had the vision. Maybe one of my neighbors uh, called my grandmother and said, we had a vision of Kelsey running down the halls of the hospital. And this, I, this is 1 million percent true. It sounds crazy. I know, but one, 1 million percent true. And the next day, I woke up from the coma and the doctors were asking me if I could walk. And I started running down the hall to the hospital, which is really crazy that she had that, that, uh, uh, prophetic vision, so to speak. And it actually came to fruition. But the reason that I told you that story is because that accident led to a large insurance settlement and there was quite a bit of money involved that I got because of that accident. So I told you that story to tell you this story. And there's going to be a lot of I told you that story to tell you this story going on. So if you get sick of that, I apologize. That's how the story goes. So, yes, large, quite a large amount of money that I was to come into after that. Now, uh, let this be known that when... I first started remembering a lot of these things is when I first quit drinking, which was right at two years ago. And, and, and I know I just, just jumped way off topic, but, uh, there are certain things that if you have a vice that you are depending on, that you don't realize why you're dependent upon it. It is to keep certain things out of your forefront in your memory. And uh, I didn't realize that until I started to go through the withdrawals. But I remembered when I was young, before this happened, that I would call my mom to come and pick me up for the weekend. And uh, she wouldn't show up or there would be some, there'd be some excuse or whatever, why she couldn't do it. And then I was, I remember that happening until up until the point to when I was eight years old, I had that accident. I remember my mom being there the whole time when I was sick, 
So I remembered when we got when we got done with that whole thing and I didn't go back to school for a while and I, I stayed at home a bunch with my grandparents and shortly after that I remembered my mom always showing up and then like coming and picking me up from school every Wednesday she that was her day she would pick me up from school on Wednesdays and uh, I would hang out with her at my other grandparents' house for a little while. And and she showed up most of the time. But then I remembered she just started showing up every time one day. And I realized that my mom was actually really cool. So, And I had a brother, my stepbrother, uh, who my mom's, my uh, my stepdad, who my mom was uh, was dating at that time, had a son. And I had never had a brother and always, I had three baby sisters and I always wanted a brother. And, uh, so I had, I could actually go and hang out with them and I wanted to do that. So I started saying I wanted to go live with my mom. Now my parents, my, my, my dad and stepmom and my grandparents all, all being the wiser on the type of person that my mother was tried to protect me from that and didn't want me to do it. And I just sort of saw it as, why would you try to keep me from my mom? And I rebelled 100%. Then when I was 10 years old, they finally gave in and I moved in with my mom, my stepdad, and my brother. And, well, my stepbrother. And uh, so I stayed there and I loved it because I hated to do homework. My mom never made me do homework. I... I had a dirty mouth. Uh, my mom let me talk however I wanted to talk. And as a kid, that's sort of a cool thing, you know, like being able to live under circumstances and when you can break the rules and uh, get away with it. And I, I love that. I love that whole thought of it. So I, got, I literally got to do whatever I wanted, uh, stay up as late as I wanted to stay up, do whatever I wanted to do. My mom did not care and allowed me to do whatever I wanted to do. That was awesome for a kid. But terrible in the same breath. Um, so I went back home to, uh, I went back home for, I, I don't know, something. A couple of years after I'd already lived with my mom, I failed the sixth grade twice. And and it was not because, it was because I didn't do homework. Like my test scores were actually, the, I failed three years in a row. And the third year that I would have had to repeat like they they passed me the second year that I failed sixth grade because of my test scores, and then the seventh grade I also failed because I just didn't do homework, and I my test scores were all fine, so they had to they had to pass me for by some random school thing I don't know they had to pass me, and I decided that I didn't want to live there anymore. I wanted to go back home and like actually. My Aunt Marie was always on top of me about doing my homework and <clears throat> like being pretty much being the mom figure and making me do what I needed to do, even though I didn't want to do it because she could see the good that would come from it and knew that it was more important to to teach me and not try to be my friend. So <laughs> I know this is crazy. I moved back home. And went to a Christian academy. 
uh, on fire for God, Christian music, Christian bands. I was, I was playing music ever since right after the accident, I started playing music and, uh, I, for some, I could pick up an instrument and it just made sense to me. Um, so I was pretty much starting bands at this point when I was around, you know, 13 or 14 and starting off playing the music at church. And then I did a couple years of that and got bored quite honestly and wanted to move back to my mom so that I could hang out with my brother some more. My brother was getting older and uh, he could get alcohol and we could drink. So I was getting interested in that. So I moved back in with my mom and I pretty much just started drinking heavily. And I I would say that when I was about probably 16 or 17, I started, I, I was, I was pretty much just trying to hang out with my brother and his friends and do whatever they were doing. And, my brother, ironically enough, never really drank or did much. He was always really good about trying to make sure that I didn't do anything stupid or whatever. And I, I realized that after a long time. But, like, I didn't, I, thinking back, I was like, you know, he really didn't do a lot of the stuff that I did. But he was definitely trying to, trying to make sure that I didn't do anything idiotic. But, um... Yeah, I started, I got a taste for drinking at a very early age. And then when I turned 18 years old, I got a check for the money that I had accrued in that accident and I got when I was eight years old. So for 10 years worth of interest on this money, and I pretty much got a check for right at a hundred thousand dollars when I was eighteen years old, and in spite uh, or despite my dad telling me to donate it or give it not donate but but uh turn the money over to investors and allowing them to build my money even further so that I really wouldn't have to work ever a day in my life i I opted to take the money myself. And pretty much just just live like a god for however long that would last for. Now, uh, I didn't think it would ever run out because I had this great idea that my mom had talked to me about. My mom said what I should do should be to give my stepdad the money so that he could buy used cars. They, they, they had a used car lot said that he should buy, I should give the money to my stepdad so he could buy used cars and we could double the money in quick time. And that would be the way that I could invest. So I told my dad about that and he was having none of it. And when I was 18 years old, it was mine. There was nothing they could do about it. If I said I wanted to do it, technically I was an adult and they had to allow me to do that. Now, my dad was the one who was in charge of all of this money. Who He he grew it from what it started at to, to where it ended up being by the time I was 18. He oversaw the entire thing, and he did all of the work for it. And as an 18-year-old child, an idiot, 
I took the money. I took $50,000 of it. And I gave it to my stepdad to give him more buying power to buy used cars. And the deal was that I give them this money and every car that they bought, I would get a hundred dollars profit off of that car. Every car that they bought, that was a hundred dollars that they use my money. So I get a hundred dollars off of it. Now this is an investment. The deal is that I get the hundred dollars, but I also, that $50,000 is still mine pretty much own this, this company at this point. And that being said, I live pretty good off of it for a while. Well, then I start to notice cars are coming and going out of the yard and I'm not seeing any money for it. So when I go and ask my mom who ran the books for this company, what's going on, why I'm not getting money. She says, well, we use someone else's money for that. And I'm like, well, wait a second. What are you, what are you talking about here? Apparently my mom had taken all this money and had spent it all. And they had figured out another way to get more money from somebody else. So I realize that I am one of many people that they have gotten to do what it was that they had done. And it was pretty much me coming to a realization that my mom was a con and that I had literally been conned. She hadn't really been present in my life up until the point that when I got in the accident and I started to realize that she knew after I got in the accident that I would be able, I would end up having all this money one day. So I started doing a little digging and asking questions from my, my grandmother, my aunt Marie, my dad, none of them. And these are all people on my dad's side of the family. Or they would never tell me what had happened. So I finally one day, I'm venting to my grandmother about why I can't get my money back. And now I'm realizing that maybe this isn't the first time that they've done that and that they're using somebody else's money. So now I'm saying, well, give me my money back then. If you're not using my money anymore, I want it back. Pretty much saying this, all these things to my grandmother. And my grandmother says that when I was two years old and my mom and dad were still together, my mom started seeing a guy and she was the bookkeeper for my dad's business. So for the last month that my mom was with my dad, she was also seeing another guy and taking every check that was written to my dad's company, depositing it in a separate account that she could give to this guy to buy used cars with. So I found out that my mom had an affair on my dad with the guy who ended up becoming my stepdad. And that was very conflicting at the moment because my stepdad was a good guy. He really was just a, just an all around good guy. And I remember him as that. But when I realized that, I didn't exactly see my mom in the same light anymore. Now, I told you that story to tell you this story. When I turned 18 and got all that money, 
me and my brother were always, my brother was my wingman. We were always out doing whatever we wanted to do. Uh, I was 18 years old, going to bars, getting hammered, <clears throat> and I could drink anywhere I wanted to drink because I had the money. And that's just all there is to it. I did that for a good year, maybe a good year and a half, year or two. And then I I'd graduated. I'd already gotten that done. I decided that I wanted to have my own house. I decided I wanted to, to live somewhere. And I took the money that I had left because I realized that I wasn't going to get anything back from my mom. And that was my basic investment. And I had spent literally uh, $46,000. I took the last $5,000 that I had out of the remaining 46000 that I had that I didn't give to my, my, uh, my stepdad and my mom and donated it to the, donated it to the high school that I graduated from the Christian school because they didn't have enough money in the account to pay the light bill. So literally I donated the last $5,000 that I had to my, uh, the Christian high school I graduated from. And, uh, they ended up shutting down a few months later, but I was literally broke and I was like, you know what? I got to get, I got to get, uh, whatever I can get now together. So I pretty much got together whatever I could by working for however long I worked and living at home and, uh, not having any rent bills. So I pretty much got all my money together and decided I was going to go on a tour. So after this point, I sort of was like, you know, I don't really feel much like, like drinking anymore, doing anything. So I stopped doing everything basically. And, um, I would drink every now and again, but it was nothing like it would be like maybe once every two or three months rather than every day. Like it had been. Um, but I got into the point before I stopped then to where I was, I would have to wake up and, uh, I would drink a, a crown and Coke first thing. As soon as I woke up, that's what I would have would be a crown and Coke. We had the, when I was working for my, uh, stepdad and my, my brother, we were doing the used car thing and I was, we were cleaning it. Me and my brother cleaned up the cars and detailed them so that we get the most money out of them when we went to sell them. And I would walk out to my pool room, which I built, and mix myself a crown and Coke every morning. And my brother is witness to this. So I would do that. Once I decided I didn't want to do that anymore, I just stopped. And I went on a tour that ended up, the last gig I played of that tour was in Myrtle Beach. And I had a buddy that lived in Myrtle Beach, and he was going to, or had a buddy who was going to party at, Myr at this house in Myrtle Beach, this guy that he knew. And uh, his name was Charlie, who you guys have heard on a episode of the Cornbread Podcast, if you listen to Cast Iron Skillet. But we went, me and my buddy Evan went to Charlie's house, and we had a his... 18th or 19th at his 19th birthday party. And we said, 
we didn't float the keg that night. And I wasn't much of a drinker then. But we didn't float the keg that night. And he said, Charlie said, well, we'll have a party every night until we float the keg. Yeah, well, we, we partied every night. And then, you know what, two or three two or three weeks later, I'm still at this house. And Charlie's like, man, you know what, man? Maybe you should start <laughs> pitching some money for rent if you're going to be staying here. Because we were all there. All of us stayed, just didn't leave. There was like five of us living in a one-bedroom house. And uh, that was just the normal five. There were always more than five, always. That that was pro, that was when I was nineteen years old. That was pretty much the beginning of the drinking. I started back pretty heavily then, but and then we moved out of this one bedroom house into a, a four bedroom house, and I was our rent was higher much higher and I wasn't making any money. I was literally just broke. I was, I, I mean, I was every, every page. I never made enough money to do anything with other than pay rent. And man, and I could choose between food or weed and I always chose weed, <laughs> but, um, I, was still not as much of a drinker as I would become at this point. And, um, I remember I left, uh, I left and I was date I was dating this girl who I met through the Starbucks I worked at in, in North Myrtle beach. So I decided I wanted to move up to North Myrtle beach for a while to be closer to her. And I went up to North Myrtle beach and I lived in Little River for a year, and at which point I pretty much did, uh, I pretty much did nothing. And then halfway through that time, I started, uh, I started drinking again, and I started smoking pot again. And uh, after a year living in Little River, I ended up moving back with my roomies, and I was pretty much looking for a job. I didn't want to do anything because I really wasn't good at anything except for music. So I started playing at random open mics around. My grandmother said that uh, my grandfather, who was a m musician, he had passed away and uh, my Aunt Marie had also passed away and my grandmother had a pretty good bit of dollars. So she, my grandmother actually paid my rent and like gave me an allowance every month, basically, uh, so that I could just play music. And I did that for a while and I was making 50 bucks to, to host open mics all around and that wasn't working. So finally, one day, one of my roommates came home and said, man, if you need a job, I heard this guy that does pest control needs help. So if you want to do that, you should go do that. And I was like, all right, fuck it. Why not? So I go and I go to work for this guy doing pest control and I'm crawling houses and I am doing uh, termite inspections and random bullshit doing pest control. It's, it's, it's an awful, it's an awful line of work. If you have to crawl houses, it's actually awesome if you don't have to crawl houses, but I digress. 
we had a house of a guy named Adam Justice, who you guys should know. We did Adam Justice's Pest Control, and Adam Justice played music. He found out I played music. It was Christmas time. I said, hey, man, boss man's having this party over at his house. Why don't you come by? We'll jam. So Adam came by with a couple of people that a couple of people that work for him. And I was in the I was in this little shed behind my boss man's house playing electric guitar along with this Prince DVD that was on. <laughs> and anyway, Adam walked in. He was doing this jamming. Uh, he, he, he was in part, in part of a couple bands back then and they needed a drummer. And I also played hand drums. So I was like, I'll come play drums with you. So I started playing drums with Adam and Zach, which eventually became Adam and Smitty. And we eventually became cornbread. And then I eventually switched to guitar and, uh, Smitty started playing the drum, but the whole me drinking and everything that I've told you on up to this point. I'm sorry to have bummed you out if I did that, uh, but, but it, it's 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 crazy. All of this is leading up to me not wanting. I didn't do the pest control for much longer after that because I was just fed up. I was giving people invoices in one day that totaled up three times as much as I got paid in a week. And I'm doing all the work and I didn't appreciate that. I didn't like that. And I don't, I'm not built to enjoy doing work so that somebody else can get rich. I don't, I I hate that. And, uh, which is why I will never have a normal fucking job. Anyway, me and Adam and Smitty had then sort of become a band at that point. And we didn't even really have a name. We would all just fight about what we wanted to call ourselves. Um, but we started doing that. And that actually started going well. And uh, Adam said that Adam's brother had a bar in Merle's Inlet. So I, in one fell swoop, said, I'm going to get my own place. One of my other roommates decided to move out as well. And me and one of my other roommates moved to a place down in Merle's Inlet and it's the place that I'm in right now. And I started working Sundays at a bar called uncle Tito's in Merle's Inlet. And I was also playing there like once a week for like 50 bucks or something. But back then I was absolutely no drinker at all compared to what I would become. When I first started playing music with Adam Justice, it was shot, 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 shot the whole time. If you were on stage, somebody's bringing you a shot. And we were playing gigs down in Santee at that point, and we didn't really have to be uh, coherent. So we were just we were just taking shots after shots after shots and so many shots. And then Adam trains me to bartend at Uncle Tito's. And I start bartending Sundays for football. So Sundays for football becomes a few happy hours. And then a few happy hours become a few shifts. And then one day the folks come in, the owners come in, 
and clean house and fire everybody except for me. And then I become manager of Tito's and the only bartender, basically. So I was the basically the only one. I was manager, bartender. I did everything. So that means that Monday through Saturday, we were closed on Sundays. Monday through Saturday, I'm going to be at this bar from 4 o'clock in the afternoon until we close. So the happy hours start. First off, when you are a bartender... The one, the toughest thing to do is work sober. It's fucking impossible. If you're a bartender, it's damn near impossible to work sober. And there are a few, Brian Jordan, bless your heart. I know you do it, man. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I couldn't do it. Um, I mean, I probably could now, but back then, obviously, I couldn't. There was no way. But anyway... The happy hour started. We had the same crew that come in every day for happy hour, and we would get fucking wasted. This is a true story, and there is still a happy hour crew crew down at Tito's. That's, there's a few of the old heads that were in there back in the day that could vouch for this. I would open the bar at 4 o'clock. I would go shot for shot with every person that sat down at the bar from opening to close. I would literally, I could take every shot that I poured for somebody, I could take one too. And I did that for a very long time. And it also almost almost became a show. But I was also giving a lot of shit away. And sorry, Jimmy. Sorry, Stoney. Love you. Uh, but I was giving so much shit away. The bar wasn't really making a lot of money. And nor was I. I wasn't, for the record, I wasn't keeping money either. I was literally taking money out of the drawer some and leaving notes to go drink across the street. But uh, I would always leave a note when I when I took anything, and I was always honest about it. And any tips that I had at the end of the night, I would always ring up a tab to the amount of those tips and put all the tips back in the drawer. And it still would be just short as fuck. Like, how did you have... I heard it was packed last night. How did you only ring this in? And the answer to that question is because I was hammered every time. Like, every time I would get fucking hammered. And uh, anyway, fucking after probably about, I would say, a year, maybe two years, two and a half, three years of that, I then had become, I think, the... I, I, the drunkest person on the Mars walk and I could be drunk, but I could still maintain myself pretty, pretty much to, to the best that I can to the best. I think I started, started off drinking with just whiskey. And when I drank whiskey, I was the funniest person on, on the planet. I was the coolest motherfucker you'd ever met. And I knew I could handle whiskey. So somewhere along the way, I decided that I wanted to switch from whiskey to vodka. Uh, so I switched to vodka, and when I started drinking vodka, I turned into something I didn't re- I didn't recognize. And my roommate at the time, 
was telling me, maybe you shouldn't drink vodka. Maybe you should go back to whiskey because when you drink vodka, you get crazy. And I was, I don't like to listen to people. Uh, so obviously I, I didn't, but somewhere along the way of drinking vodka, I switched to taking shots of rumple mints, which is now Merle's inlets shot of choice, basically for, I would say eight out of 10 people. Um, I got to where I was drinking probably about a bottle, three quarters of a bottle a day of rumple there towards the end. And I did that for probably about the last year that I drank. And after, after, like I said, probably about a year of that, I started getting just, my voice was getting bad. I was hearing people were posting videos of me singing on Facebook. And I was just like, this is terrible. Uh, I've always prided myself in my ability to play music. And when it started to sound bad, I was like, I was getting depressed because my, everybody has to have that one thing that they're, that they, that they are satisfied with about themselves. And that one thing about me was music. But when I started to hear what I was sounding like, and I was like, man, this isn't good. Then I'm, then I'm feeling worthless in like, I wanted something that I was good at and I wanted it to stay that way, but it didn't. And it was because I was drinking and, and cigarettes were ruining my voice. So I decide somewhere around Valentine's day that I don't want to smoke cigarettes anymore. <clears throat> now, a lot of the stuff that I've already said is sort of fluff material for this last chunk of this story. All right. When you see a commercial on TV about uh, some way to quit smoking, there's always a side effect that says if you have suicidal thoughts or weird dreams or whatever have you, then you should contact a doctor. Well, I'm thinking why on earth would anybody want to take something that's going to make them feel this way or make them have crazy dreams or fucking weird shit? I realized that it's nothing to do with the medication, but the lack of nicotine that your body is used to will make you crazy. It makes your brain, it makes you suicidal. It makes you have crazy dreams and that's like I, I didn't take anything, any medication at all, or no patches, no gum, nothing. I just stopped. And all of the side effects that these not these quit smoking things tell you about happened. And I I know that it's just because of the withdrawals from nicotine, and I just didn't realize they were that strong. But I quit smoking on Valentine's Day. Uh, what was it? What would it be? 2016? Yeah, 2016. And I continued to drink for two weeks. Two weeks on the nose. So I I was pounding bottles of rumple. And at this point, I'm going to get a little graphic here. 
At this point, I was puking up blood about every night and not just a little bit. And I was literally worried that I was going to die. I was, I had not smoked cigarettes in however long and I was losing my mind. So I wanted to die and I was not shy about saying it. I would tell everybody that I saw that I was miserable and I wanted to die and it's terrible, but I 100% did that. And I was just crazy because of no cigarettes and add alcohol, which is the greatest, which is the greatest depressant ever created. Um, I was losing my mind and I was driving away the people that are close to me. And I was doing that on purpose. I don't know why, but I was doing that. So, so it all boiled down to one day. Cornbread had, uh, had a gig and it was an early gig. Now I'm not an early person. I'm, I'm a night, I'm a night person. I like to be awake when everybody else is asleep. Um, I got up early after a night of heavy drinking, which I probably downed uh, three quarters of a bottle of Rumpel, not counting other shots that people would buy me. And I go and I do this gig from like 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock, and it was the worst gig I've ever played. After I got done there, I took... It was a Bloody Mary competition. I'm not a big Bloody Mary guy, but I took shots of vodka <laughs> minus the the mix at several different places. And then I went to another gig that I was going to be playing at Dead Dog that day, a daytime gig. I think it was a one to four. I got there. I did probably, I don't think I took any shots when I got there. I tried to to hold it out until at least we took our break. So we took a break. Or I, either way, we we stopped playing and I'm pretty much pretty sure we were done playing by the time I wanted to try to drink. So we I housed as much food as I could because I wanted to have a good bed for the alcohol I was going to drink. You have to you have to eat so you have something to soak up your alcohol or you get just completely wasted. If you are out there and you get too, too shitty drunk all the time, eat something trust me. But anyway, so I was eating, I ate as much as I could, as fast as I could. Bad idea. Then I went straight to the bar. I ordered a shot. As soon as the shot touched my mouth, I had to throw up. As soon as the shot touched my mouth, I grabbed the trash can and threw up in the trash can behind the bar. And it was awfully embarrassing. But I did that. <laughs> and uh, I, after I did that, I was fine. I'd gotten everything out of me that needed to be out of me. And I, I then I just started drinking. I went and I got royally hammered after that. Finished the gig, took shots after shots, walked up and down the marsh walk. And this was a few hours later when it had started to get dark. 
me and one of the bartenders from Dead Dog were out just taking shots at every bar we stopped at. I go to a different bar and leave him where he was. And a few minutes later, Bubba uh, of the famous Bubba's Love Shack walks up to me and says, man, you have got to come and get this dude and take him home. So, I mean, I was like, all right, sure. So I show up, pull my car up to the front of, of, uh, of Creek Rats. Bubba helps me get dude in the car. And he is fell. He had fell so many times. He tried to headbutt Bubba. Uh, but he, he had fell and busted his head open on the corner of a table. So he's bleeding out of his head all over the place. Finally get him in the car. I get him to his house and I'm trying to get him, get him out of the car and carry him into the house. All in the good nature of a Samaritan. I try to be, he goes to fall and I try to brace up to grab him so he don't fall. But instead of helping me, he grabs me and pretty much just pulls me down too. And I slam my head into the ground at his house and he's trying to wrestle. He's trying to buck around. And I'm obviously hammered. And I just knocked the shit out of my head. So I was swimmy as fuck. I'm trying to get this motherfucker in the house. I finally get him in his house. And I am just that little bit of tussling around and rage and aggression. I didn't get out. So I go back to Tito's. Walk into Tito's and everybody's looking at me like I'm fucking crazy. And I didn't realize that I'm just fucking covered in blood. And it wasn't mine. But I'm just covered in blood. Everybody's asking me what the fuck. They go, like a uh, few people go and check on. Uh, he don't give a shit. It's Earhart. He, he, all right. So uh, uh, Blair and Jan go to check on Earhart. While they're doing that, I am literally just running through Tito's. Apparently, I threw a pool ball through, tried to throw it through the back door. Uh, I mean, just breaking shit, just being fucking ill, being a psycho. And I'm going all over to different fucking places, and I'm, like, just saying the shittiest fucking things to everybody that I see. I slapped the shit out of probably every... Every dude that I saw, I don't know why I wanted to, but I was just slapping the shit out of all of my friends. And I just broke down. I absolutely broke down in front of a lot of people and just told them a bunch of crazy shit that was working on my mind. And I lost control of myself and I probably just cried for, I don't know how long, just, just saying all these different things that had been bothering me and all of this crazy shit that, uh, that I had in my head. And it was obviously crazy things and they were weird situations that I had created in my own head, but I had, just focused on just those things because I was so depressed. I was drunk 
every second of my life. And I was deprived of cigarettes, which I had smoked the day that I quit. I smoked more than two packs of parliaments. The day that I, st- the last day I smoked, I smoked more than two packs of parliaments. And the last day I quit drink, the last day I drank, I know I drank more than a bottle of rumple. And I just broke down to my old roommate and I was just fucking crying to her and several other people in the parking lot of Crooked Floor just screaming that I wanted to die and I was sick of being alive and just saying a lot of really, really shitty, crazy psycho things. And I, I just, the next day, I, um, my buddy, one of my buddies gave me a Bradley fucking Parker, fucking Bradley. Bradley gave me a ride home that night and he stayed here with me until fucking, until he realized that I wasn't going to do anything crazy. And I woke up the next day just sore and the memory started coming back. My face was sore, but I know like it was sore like I'd been hit. But I knew that the only thing that had happened was I fell and hit my head at Earhart's house. But my whole face was sore. Apparently, people told me that I was punching the shit out of myself. And uh, I was, I pretty much spent the next couple of weeks finding out what I had done. And I went and played trivia that night. It was, that was Monday. I went and played trivia that night. And after I did that, it was, I had to play a gig at dead dog the next day. And it was the first gig that I played sober. Um, I went and played that gig and it was by far the worst gig that I, I have ever played. So I played the two worst gigs that I've ever played right there back to back, which was the last gig that I played drunk and the first gig that I played sober. But the last gig that I played drunk at Dead Dog and the first gig that I played sober was at Dead Dog. So that's kind of a funny coincidence. But um, I just kept hearing stories back from what people had said and people were saying that I was saying, and I was obviously just completely out of my mind. And I said, dude, I got to stop drinking for a while. Like there's no way that I can continue to live like this. So I stopped for a week and then I, I was thinking about starting back again. And I was like, you know, I'm going to go for another week. And that was when people were saying like things like, Oh, there's no way there's, they were pretty much like taking bets. I know that people were taking bets on when I would drink, 
Um, but I, I started to realize out of that, that I drank more than everybody else on the Mars walk. I'm pretty sure sh- I'm almost positive. I did. There's a few people who drank more than I did and I, or, or maybe not any, uh, but I thought maybe everybody that's in the Mars walk is sort of, it may be close to the mindset that I was in because of alcohol, because I couldn't, because I was uh, a slave to it basically. And I really was, but I thought maybe I'm not the only one. Maybe, maybe there's more people who feel this way and they're, they're just, they don't realize it or, Maybe they don't think that they can stop because they feel that they're dependent on it. And then when I, when I realized that I said, well, I don't think I can start back drinking then because if I start back, then that just, that just shows everybody else around that. Okay. Well, I guess that is the answer that there's no, that, that, uh, you, you can't quit. Like uh, there's no way to, to stop when you're in it that hard. And that realization kept me from drinking and there's been times that I've wanted a drink. There's been times when I want a cigarette I'm damn near every day, but I know that if I take a drink, then there is a whole inlet full of people who may need to stop drinking. And I'm not, I'm not calling anybody out at all. I, I'm and don't think that, but maybe if there's somebody who's struggling with the thought of wanting to stop, then maybe they won't do it if they find out that I drank and I can't live with that. I don't want, I want to be the reason that people better themselves. And I've always wanted that. And I actually have the opportunity now in my life to be that I wanted to be an example that you really didn't have to drink. Like there were you, there was a life without that. And I still try to be that, uh, that example. Um, I quit, I quit drinking and Almost immediately after I quit drinking, I started doing copious amounts of cocaine. Um, I literally just, I, uh, that's why I said I have an addictive personality in the very beginning. Um, I traded one, actually I traded two vices for another. I traded cigarettes and alcohol for just blow. And I was doing ridiculous amounts of it. And... I couldn't get enough. I loved it. It was the greatest thing that I had ever done. I loved it. And I realized that I wasn't, yes, I did stop doing those two things at the drop of a hat. Yes, I did that. But I had replaced it with something much worse than both of those things. I got pretty wrapped up in that stuff. It started to take over my life and my brain. And once I realized 
pretty much the feeling that something else was dominant over my life than myself. I just, I, I, I stopped. I had to figure out somewhere else to put, because I have this addictive personality, I had to find somewhere else to put that addictiveness that I have. And that, my friends, is where all of these podcasts came from. After that, I had, I had realized that I didn't need any, any mind-altering drug to fill that void. It could be anything. And I started playing more music at home. And I also just started spending a lot of time at home by myself because I realized that I'm a character and, uh, it's something, and I've noticed a lot of comedians that I, I love and appreciate who, who say that they're in character all, all the time. Like you're always in character and I'm one of those people. I'm always in character. And I, I don't like that, but I am always in character. And I and it's pretty much, I believe, because if I were actually my real self, I would never have anyone around me. I would never, like, I wouldn't have any friends. I would just, I would be, I would literally be alone every second of my life if I were the actual person I think I really am on the inside. And I've heard a lot of other people say that in in me, me studying to try to find out more about people like me. And I also realize that you can't keep that character hat on all the time. You, you have to eventually break down and show who you are. So I started thinking I've played characters for so long. I really had no idea who I really am. So because I have an addictive personality, I don't want to be around anybody who does anything that maybe I don't want to do because I'm afraid that I would try to replace whatever the drugs that I'm not doing anymore with another vice. And I don't want that. So I literally just started, I just started sitting at home. I started being by myself. I started recording things that I was saying through these podcasts and listening to myself talk to try and figure out who I am and try and figure out what, what kind of person I really am outside of the character. And the best that I could come up with is that I'm just somebody who wants people to look at me, see somebody who they can learn from. And I'm trying my damnedest to fashion my life and my mentality, my mindset into a position where people will view me as I want to be viewed. And I really, really am lucky to have this, this podcast set up to where I can just sit down and, and say things that are on my chest and get them off my chest at any given time. And 
there's some, there's a certain, and I know a lot of people won't listen to this, but a few will. And just knowing that somebody other than myself are going to hear these words makes them mean more to me in a weird way. And I, well, not in a weird way, but in an obvious way, because having an issue and having a problem with something is hell on you as a person, but it also is on those around you. So knowing that I can talk about these things and knowing that other people will hear this conversation and hear, will, will hear this, these words makes me, uh, makes me feel validated in saying them and rather than just having these thoughts and not speaking them. But, uh, I know this is all crazy. The reason that's the long story. The reason that I quit drinking is because everything that has happened, just damn near everything in my life that has happened has set me up to be depressed. Alcohol is a depressant. Those two things together in my life were not good. Maybe someone else out there has has had a, a good go at it, and they they haven't had, or or, or maybe they just don't view uh, our issues or problems or situations that occur the same way that I do, and they're stronger, maybe stronger than me, and able to handle a situation like that better than me. And and by that, kudos, and I, I really envy that. But I'm not one of those people. I realize that I can't, I can't have extra depressants in my brain because I don't need them. And I started off this episode thinking that I was going to tie in the depression aspect of it a lot more because I wanted to do a depression episode, um, just, just so that I could get these, get those thoughts off my chest, um, and I know a lot of people out there, more people than, than you know, and more people than you think. And it's usually the last person you expect to be depressed that are. And I wanted to let those people know that I get you. I 1 million percent know that pain and it is an itch that can't be scratched. And it's just a terrible terrible demon that we all wrestle and I know we all do and it's just very helpful for me to say these things and to get this out so that other people can also maybe vent through that like whether it be in that you speak these words to somebody else or whether you just hear me say this and we have a, a connection or an understanding with each other that we understand what the other is going through, then that's all I'm trying to accomplish. I'm uh, coming up to a close here, but in closing, basically what I want to say is, and I'm, I'm just an average fucking human. I'm a normal guy. Well, you know what I mean. <laughs> I'm just I'm just your everyday guy 
that has depression and I always will. I know I will because I'm not going to take any medication for it because I feel like the medication sometimes makes you something worse than what you would be. So I always will have it. I will always struggle with it. But I also have the knowledge that I can maybe help someone else deal with this problem that I also have. And I've come to terms with having it and I'm used to it. And I know there's a lot of people out there who are not. And I would love to be able to help somebody who is not able to deal with this or cope with this thing to do so. I have been there. I have been to the lowest mental state into which I've wanted and attempted to kill myself. And I thank God for the people in my life at that point who made me believe that that wasn't the answer and who made me believe that there was people out there who that would affect. And it would be very selfish of me to remove myself from a situation that involved other people. And basically all I want to say is that if you have ever had those thoughts or if you have those thoughts at all, if there is nobody else you can talk to, talk to me. Because I've been there and I know what that's like. I know what it I know what the game's about and I've played it and it almost killed me, but it didn't. And I am really, really grateful for whatever being I call it God, whatever you call it, by all means, I am really grateful that God didn't allow me to do that so that I could tell you guys that you don't have to do that either. So that being said, this is the most depressing <laughs> episode of Merle's and Let Stuff you'll probably ever get. And um, I, I feel like this, this one may be a sore shoulder on the body of this work that we will eventually build, but it's something that we all struggle with and I needed to, I needed to hear my, myself say a lot of these things that I've said. So that's why I quit drinking. I quit drinking and I continue to have to not drink because I want to be the example. I want to be the example that it can be done. And, uh, that's why I've quit everything that I feel that I've needed to quit. So for those of you out there that say it can't be done, it fucking can be done. Um, I'm living proof. So not a whole lot more. I want to add to that. Thank you guys for listening. Um, we're going to have, a lot more cool things that are coming up when the weather starts to get warmer and people start to come out of their shells a little more. 
but until then, I'm probably going to just be sitting down talking to you guys like this, getting a lot of shit off my chest, and whatever comes up between now and then that I feel like I want to talk to you guys about, I'm going to do that. So, by all means, enjoy these uh, these little tidbits of things that I feel like uh, you guys would want to hear. And if you don't want to hear it, uh, then don't fucking listen. <laughs> so, in signing off, thank you guys for listening to Merle's and Let Stuff. Depression and alcohol is some of the most Merle's and Let Stuff I can think of. Sorry to be such a bummer, man. I know that's fucking bummer talk, but seriously, if you have those thoughts or bad urges, talk to somebody. There is everybody in the world has at least one person that will listen to them. And if you don't have that one person, let it be me. Send me an email at misnerds at gmail. Send me an email. Talk to me. I'm here. I'll be there. I can assure you of that. Anyway, thank you guys for listening. Real tight.